We're in the last month of 2020 and the holiday season is among us. During this time of year, many people struggle with seasonal effect disorder, holiday blues, and now the news of rising COVID cases. In this episode, we're focusing on our healthcare colleagues and workers on the front line struggling to lead a balanced life. What are some ways that clinicians can prioritize their own stress management and how can CE providers support clinician well-being during the most critical of times? In the next segment, Graham will speak with Adi Haramadi, Professor of Integrative Physiology from Georgetown University. This is the Coffee with Graham podcast, and I'm your host, Melissa Simmons. In each episode, we'll discuss different issues and hot topics in healthcare with ACCME President and CEO, Dr. Graham McMahon. We'll also have guest interviews with our continuing education colleagues. These are monthly conversations that address local and national healthcare priorities. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Melissa, and a big welcome to you, Addy. Uh, how are you doing? It's a pleasure to be with you today. A professor of integrative physiology is not a typical title. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into thinking about stress and wellness? Um, I appreciate the question because uh, my career has taken lots of different turns. Um, I trained as a physiologist and my background is in the kidney and electrolytes, which is very concrete. And that's uh, where I did my training at Mayo Clinic and then came to Georgetown. Um, Over time, every seven years, it seems to have taken a different turn. So seven years into uh, Ben's science, um, Dean sent me to go learn about education. And so I began to think about how to optimize the teaching of science. And then seven years after that, um, I had the opportunity to think about integrative medicine as a way to help foster student attitudes about patient care. And uh, as patients are looking for solutions from the alternative medicine space, the question was what's scientific and what isn't. And so I felt that we needed to begin to teach students about it. And as part of that, uh, brought in uh, tools to foster student self-awareness using meditation and guided imagery. And those tools helped our students, but also as the pandemic unfolded, and even before that, as burnout unfolded, These tools of uh, mind-body medicine uh, turned out to be very useful, and I became interested in the science of stress and the science of de-stress. So it's been an interesting path approaching this from a physiological uh, perspective, not necessarily a mental health or a psychological one. Well, especially as an educator, also thinking about how we construct learning environments to support wellness, not just for its value intrinsically, but also as a mechanism to encourage actual learning. Maybe I could have you start off by telling us a little bit about how stress and the toll that continuing stressors take on the body and the mind, not just of healthcare professionals, but essentially of entire communities. It's a, it's a good question. Let's, let's focus on how our body responds to stressors. This is one of the greatest um, mechanisms that we have to uh, promote our well-being and to help us manage uh, challenges to our system. So the stress response is really straightforward. As, we, as things impinge on us, the brain has a step in which it appraises the situation and makes a split-second decision. Is this a threat to me or not? 
It could be physical stress. It could be emotional stress. I'm having trouble in a relationship. It could be psychological stress. Uh, it could be uh, I'm walking in a neighborhood that I'm not familiar with, and all of a sudden I feel anxious, and I'm wondering, am I a, in a threatening situation? The brain perceives this, and when it makes a split-second decision that this could be a threat, the cascade that ensues is exactly the same. And it's important to understand the cascade that ensues because that pattern is one that can then be modified. So the part of the brain, the, the hypothalamus, will release, release a hormone called CRH, and that will affect the pituitary gland that everybody knows about. And that will in turn uh, release ACTH, will affect the adrenals, and we have cortisol released, a hormone that uh, many people are familiar with as a stress hormone. Well, cortisol is also a glucocorticoid a hormone that raises blood sugar. Meanwhile, back in the brain, there's activation of the sympathetic nervous system by the same mechanisms. And so heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, and the brain and the heart and the skeletal muscle need the sugar that was raised by cortisol in order to act appropriately. And so we have a perfect response to deal with the threat. Now, normally what happens is we deal with the threat and the threat goes away and things come back to baseline. But many times, particularly for individuals that work in high-stress environments, you don't have one threat. You have multiple stressors that are coming at you. And, and if you think about healthcare workers uh, dealing with not just the issues in front of them, the patients from room to room to room, but family issues and financial issues and the health of loved ones and concern about elderly parents, which we all had before the pandemic. When we're dealing with these multiple situations, what happens is if there's not sufficient time for each stressor to be addressed adequately, the levels don't come back to baseline after a particular stressor. And so the levels creep up and creep up. Think of it like a little bit higher blood pressure each time. And then what happens is when a new stressor ensues, we don't respond adequately. And so that what happens is we get into a chronic stress situation as opposed to dealing with an acute stressor. And when that chronic stress situation occurs, that's when we get sick. That's when students in colleges uh, begin to get sick during exam time as those stressors have built up and they're not responding adequately. And that's what happens to us when we have family issues that have overwhelmed us. So it's very important that we understand how the stress response occurs. I assume that's been also your observation watching healthcare workers and students uh, during this crisis that indeed the burden of chronic stress seems to have accelerated to levels heretofore not really even seen. And we already knew we had serious problems of burnout and stre chronic stress in the past. But now, as people have taken on new changing healthcare roles, as the, the concerns about their practice integrity, everything is mounting up. It seems like we're, we're heading into a really difficult time. Has that been your observation too? Absolutely. So, so let's just take that conversation further, and then we'll put it into the pandemic state. So, um, so here we, we just described an individual that is beset by a multiple uh, a variety of stressors and finding it's difficult to cope with all of them, and the stress response now is overwhelmed. So what does a person do? Well, one way is to try and find ways to actually bring levels back to baseline. And this is the rationale for things like meditation 
for some. Um, for others, it could be uh, a guided imagery or a different relaxation exercise. But to give pause and to remove the thought process that's driving a lot of this. Uh, and so listening to music or taking a walk in nature are ways in which the system can actually recover and come back to baseline. So uh, one strategy that we had clinicians use is if you just take a few breaths, even 30 seconds of brisk breathing between patients as you go from room to room, you enable a new baseline to be set, which actually prepares you better. And so uh, that's all fine and good. And then, of course, you put a pandemic on top of this, where now we have uh, an extraordinary uh, set of circumstances in which uh, there's a fear of the unknown. There's a fear of a disease. Am I actually going to get hurt? What's happening to my family? Um, and we can go on in terms of what's happening at our academic centers, but it simply accelerates the problem and accentuates it. And so now more than ever, each of us needs to take time to figure out what is it that I could do for myself to optimize the way I respond and cope in a situation like this. Absolutely. And and the the issue here is there's an interplay between institutional and personal factors. Just like you said, people are dealing with their, all of their own domestic and personal issues, whether that's issues of, of humility or self-worth or issues in relationships or psychological stressors. But now you also have institutional factors. Maybe before we talk about how this affects performance, things we can do about it, what are some of the biggest institutional factors you've seen that, that lead healthcare providers uh, to, to reach these levels of, of, of chronic stress that are, are so detrimental? So let's go back before the pandemic, uh, because um, the situation was not great. Go back a year, two years, five years ago, uh, we were discovering quite a few um, factors and, and learning about this as it was studied more in terms of what's going on in academic health institutions uh, that was creating the burnout issue for clinicians. And when I say clinician, I mean physicians, I mean nurses, I mean everyone on the healthcare team is suffering. So, so there are a number of factors that we know are predisposing individuals to burnout and, and to chronic stress. Uh, one is, is excessive workload. Um, our healthcare workers are simply uh, overtaxed. Um, there's, there's a lot to do. And I will tell you that it's not working hard doesn't cause burnout, but working hard in an environment in which you can't manage your schedules or you're dealing with an inefficient system or the IT support is not there, that is what leads to burnout. Or, or having uh, workflow disruptions and interruptions and uh, the, the necessity to be much more administrative and to focus on a computer rather than on the patient. So there are many elements in how healthcare is delivered uh, that have been problematic, that have ex uh, you know exacerbated uh, the situation. And then we have uh, the fact that you know we're dealing in many cases with life and death situations. This is inherently stressful. And if there isn't adequate time to process what is happening from patient to patient to patient, that too is an issue as we talk about this concept of moral distress, of, of wanting to do the best for the patient, but being constrained by institutional issues or insurance issues or family issues. Uh, these are all elements that have come to play. Now, you take that situation and now you put on top of this a pandemic. Uh, take the situation in, in New York City in April. So March 9th, I tell you, Georgetown University basically shut down. New York City was um, a hot spot back in March and April. One of the most disturbing things, uh, really heartbreaking, was the fact that uh, the 
the director of the emergency department at Columbia Presbyterian Affiliate Hospital, Allen Hospital, a woman named Dr. Lorene Breen, found she could no longer cope and unfortunately and tragically committed suicide on April 26th. And uh, it shocked the entire medical field because here was an individual who was the paradigm of coping, of being cool, running an ER, really well-liked and admired by her colleagues. And yet she felt that she was in a position where she couldn't uh, cope any longer. She couldn't manage it. So there are two pieces to it. One is what was happening that put this person basically in a situation of feeling completely helpless. And number two, how did the system fail her? This is not about her not being able to cope adequately. It's about the system not creating the environment for her to feel that she can get help. These are things that we have to explore. Yeah, it's what I find myself doing at the end of my own clinics. Uh, I mean, my, I provide uh, care for a, a relatively minority and in, and in some cases, indigenous population. I'm an endocrinologist, many of whom are losing their insurance or have lost it because of unemployment and other factors. And it's it's routine. I get the end of a, a single session and at least one of my patients will have been crying with me on the phone. And you know, it, it's exhausting for me because you can't but take on the emotional context of that interaction yourself and, and feel grieved by the experience of the patients uh, around us. Um, how, I mean, that exhaustion is, is got to be affecting my performance, even if it's an emotional exhaustion. I have to assume that chronic stress reliably affects performance and negatively for the entire healthcare community, particularly at times when we need them the most. Yes, you're exactly right. So what we do know is that chronic stress and uh, individuals that exhibit high levels of burnout actually don't perform as well. There is an increased incidence of errors. Uh, many studies that have shown that productivity goes down. So there's a personal toll and there's a professional toll. The personal toll is individuals try to uh, cope as best they can, uh, many times using inappropriate uh, means like alcohol or drug abuse. Um, depression ensues. There's a shame attached to that. Why is it that I can't manage? And so that's the personal toll. The professional toll, of course, is the institution suffers. And so there's a mandate here to try and have both institutions and individuals work together to figure out what can we do on an institutional level and what can we do on, a, on an individual level, on a personal level. There's no one answer here. There's a combined set of answers. I will tell you, let me now use a personal example. By the second week in March, so we shut down March 9th. By March 15th, I get a call from our executive vice president of the medical center saying I'm, he's going to hold a town meeting by Zoom. It's the first time we've ever done that back in March, now it's routine, but back in March. And he said, we're going to talk about the status. We're going to talk about the patients. We're going to talk about some of our next steps for education and research. But I want you to spend 10 minutes to talk about self-care. This is the executive vice president. And I was uh, surprised, uh, but I thought, you know, this is exactly right. By taking 10 minutes out of an hour town hall, we had 550 people online to simply state, I'd like one of our colleagues to talk about why the importance of self-care is so critical now. And, uh, and it's not the usual, yes, you need your oxygen mask on first before prepping others. We know that. There are things that we know inherently. But here's the thing. As a group, that is clinicians, academic faculty, 
uh, we know what we need to do. We just don't do it. And the reason we don't do it is because, A, we feel that we could either, uh, you know, cowboy our way through this thing, brave it. Uh, we're not weak. We can do this. Um, or we feel um, uh, some sense of shame if somehow uh, we turn for help. The idea behind discussing self-care was to simply outline a number of strategies that we could all use. And at the core was this, we have to help each other. We have to understand that our colleagues are suffering. Everybody's worried about family, about their own safety, about what the future holds, which we could not answer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come together as a group, as a team, as uh, an institution, as a organization. And so those are beginning the steps of, first of all, recognizing that we're human, recognizing we have limits, and then making it safe for people to say, you know what, I need help. That's the first step. How do you, I mean, healthcare professionals are notoriously strong, have incredible resolve, persistence, endurance through difficult issues. It's, it's to some degree, not just how we're trained, but how we practice. We navigate very tumultuous environments around us, particularly in the emotional lives of our, our patients and their families. How do you get a sophisticated professional to start to recognize the challenges they're facing and not feel shame or embarrassment of it? How do we get someone like Dr. Breen, who so tragically succumbed to these mental health issues and the environment that she was in, how do we get her to ask for help? So I think we work from the top and from the bottom. We work from the grassroots and we work from uh, the leadership side. Um, And the goal is going to be to change the orientation, to change the culture. The culture has to move from patient uh, comes first at all costs to um, if you don't take care of yourself, the care of the caregiver, then you can't help anybody else. And so this isn't about how many hours can I go without sleep and still care for patients, but rather what actually makes sense here? What is safe? And what, you know, the aviation industry figured this out a long time ago. There are limits. There are limits on how long a pilot can be in the cockpit, no matter who they are. Uh, Because the fact is, is that we recognize that humans have limitations. And so we have to move from this model of you fully sacrifice at all costs to how do we optimize what you can deliver uh, to your colleagues, uh, to your patients, uh, to the environment. And so this is what I mean by top and bottom. Uh, The top, what my executive vice president did, which said, we have to talk about self-care. And step two is model it. If it's uh, leading in a meditation Meditation is not for everybody. If it's recognizing, ask for help when you need it. Uh, Those of you that are listening that have trained residents, you know that the biggest entrustment issue is when does a resident learn to say, I need help? Tell me. Because uh, it better you tell me you need help than go ahead and I'm not sure. Do I or don't I? And so the culture, uh, the culture that we could build on is the one of, of safety. If you think about patient safety 20 years ago, uh, when the study came out in the National Academy about errors, and then that led to a whole change in culture about acknowledging error, and instead of putting the blame, making the environment safe so people come forward and identify errors to prevent future errors. What we need to do now is actually change the environmental culture of our work units and of our learning uh, communities so that we say, we need to put self-care first because the challenges are not going away. 
What we have to do is optimize the way we approach it. And so when I say bottom up, the way we do the bottom up is actually I start with medical students. And, and I have an interesting um, something to share with you about a new innovation that we started in our medical school. I was extremely concerned by this new group of students starting in August, this past August, coming to an entirely virtual environment. We were shut down in Washington, D.C. And so we have students that were accepted to medical school. They start class and basically they did not leave their house. They turn on their laptops and now they were in medical school and they were alone. And many of them were not with their families. They were simply in their apartments alone. And so I went to the deans to say, we need to create a community online that's designed to build a, a place, not about academics, about personal life. And we called it Creating Caring Communities. And every incoming student was assigned to a group of 10 with one faculty member who was trained to facilitate these kinds of groups and a second-year medical student who already took our mind-body course last spring. And so these were co-facilitated, a faculty and a student leader with 10 medical students. These were brand new students. We had every single student in a group, and we said for the first two meetings, they're mandatory. After that, you could decide to opt out or you stay, we're going to meet seven times over the first semester. What this did is it helped transition students into a place where we help them acknowledge, yes, I'm lonely. Yes, I feel like I'm uh, the only one here that doesn't know anything. We help them through the imposter syndrome. We help students actually transition. So this is one example of how you recognize, no, you, you have to prepare students for what they're about to face. Now, we would build on that. We're going to prepare students for what they're about to face in the clinic. We're going to prepare students for the fact that half of them are going to score below average for the first, on the first test for the first time in their lives. These are things that uh, I think we could prepare our learners, and then we move up the food chain to our faculty, to our staff, and so on. It, uh, it's, it's a model that's worked for, for me in the past. I remember my residency program, we used to get uh, small groups together to reflect on key emotional challenges we've had with families, with ourselves, with our own relationships, et cetera. And it was a safe place to talk about those things. And they're some of the most memorable uh, few hours that I ever spent in residency with those opportunities to reflect on and share the experiences that were much more universal than I ever thought. I absolutely agree with you. And I'll tell you, if there's one area of medical education that's expanding, it's the narrative self-reflection yeah. that are going on continually as we give students the opportunity to reflect not just on uh, difficult, challenging uh, events, but also on positive events and on ways in which teams, individuals can help each other. So we've moved from competition to collaboration and, and to really helping each other compassionately. You've mentioned meditation several times, Adi. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how meditation can help in these environments, uh, how it can drive the type of self-awareness and self-appreciation that's so important to evolve and, and improve. So it's interesting about meditation. I, if you would have told me 20 years ago that I would be leading a meditation class in my medical school, I would have um, thought that you were drinking some interesting beverage because the fact is, is that there's nothing further from my mind. I mean, I grew up in New York City, you know, very rational sort of individual, you would say, concrete. and Scientist, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. And so here I am with my tincture bells leading a group. Now, what is that all about? Um, as I learned about these different techniques, 
uh, we were looking for a way in which uh, to use meditation as a way for students to begin to learn about themselves. And it wasn't the only way. We were using narratives. We were using guided imagery. But meditation was also one of uh, those tools. Now, as I've learned more about that particular uh, experience, what I found physiologically, and if you study the neuroscience of this, it's really fascinating, that meditation has a way, especially if you practice, uh, I would say, mindfulness meditation, where the goal is very simple. You're, you're paying attention to what is happening to you right now in the present moment without judgment. Now, those three pieces are key. You're paying attention to the present moment and you're not judging. Now, first of all, it's very difficult for us to pay attention in the present moment because imagine where you're even for those that are listening now, you're listening, but I would venture to say you're also doing something else at the same time because this is how we are. You know, we're, we're engaged in an activity, but we're thinking about something else. We're walking in the park, but we're thinking about dinner or we're thinking about uh, someone we have to speak to. And so, but if we just change that and just focus on what is my experience at the present moment, and you find that it's actually very hard to do because as soon as you do that for five seconds, a thought pops in your head and you get distracted. But if you learn to say, oh, a thought just came in about our grandchild, I'm going to hold that. I'm going to hold that, come back to where I am this minute. And the non-judgment speed is critical because we are all super achievers. If we don't do things perfectly, we don't do them. So the idea behind non-judgment is not I have to meditate the best I can. Or if I have a group of medical students, each one is thinking I'm going to be the best meditator in the class. No, I tell them that's not the goal. The goal is close your eyes, focus on your breath in the present moment. But here's the thing. It's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. It's you. After the experience, you ask yourself, what was my experience? In other words, you look at it objectively and say, what was my experience? And this time it may be different than it was last time. And next time it may be different than it was just now. In other words, objectively, what is my experience? That's all you're doing. Now, if you practice that, and if you could extend your focus from five seconds to 15 seconds to 30 seconds, what's happening is your mind is not focused on thoughts that are generating anxiety or stress. You're not thinking about the next patient. You're taking 30 seconds to just focus on where am I standing and breathing. And so that begins to initiate the relaxation response. That begins to reduce the highly alert state of um, agitation and begins to calm us down. That has a very salutary effect to actually bring things back down to baseline, if you will, the parasympathetic side of things. And so that's where some of the benefits come in, is that you're able to self-regulate through this process. Now, some people find that meditation really is not for them. And so I say, fine, find other things that you can engage with. For example, someone who loves music and you put on a piece of music that is very relaxing and captures their attention, they forget that they have a deadline because for those five minutes, they've just settled into that piece. So the idea is to find things that can allow you to settle down into a space. For me personally, um, it took a while. It took my, the first time I tried to do a meditation, I, I was so agitated and, and uh, just I couldn't sit still. But with time, you learn that. And then there's another piece to this. And the other piece to this is, while I was first time leading a group with my students, I was extremely uncomfortable leading a meditation group. I mean, I'm the kidney guy. Urine and mindfulness are never in the same sentence. And so the question is, um, 
how would, well, what am I doing reading a script on meditation with my medical students that know me as the guy who teaches about the kidney? Well, the truth is they didn't see that, the students. They didn't see the kidney guy. What they saw was a professor of theirs taking the time to lead them in a meditation exercise. He must have felt this is really important to do. And that's where the role model piece comes out. And so if we want our system to change, this is really my message. If we want the environment to change in the work environment or in the learning environment, and it involves understanding and modeling that sometimes we do need to take care of ourselves. And if it means breathing for five minutes or just sitting quietly or reading a poem or yes, even meditating, that if we model that, then our students will follow us. And if we just ridicule it or say, this is silly, then it'll have the other consequences. So it takes courage to step out of your comfort zone and to model something like this. Now, I will tell you 20 years ago, this was a bit radical in our medical school. Today, 2020, we run groups with surgery residents. In uh, every faculty meeting, uh, we'll start with a one minute. I don't always call it meditation. I might say, let's give one minute of intentionality to what we're about to do. It could be a committee meeting or it could be, how are we? But basically, let's just take a minute and just focus on what we're trying to get done today or what we're about to do or how grateful we are to have all of us, even by Zoom, connecting. That sets intention in a place which changes the environment in a positive way. Thank you for that explanation and that oversight and sharing your experience, Adi. I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that in many ways, continuing education can sometimes be considered to be 20 years in the past. Now, there are many organizations who've embraced helping clinicians with wellness, helping clinicians with non-cognitive skills, with self-awareness, with communications, with team-based care processes of improvement, all of these things that are so important to our health and, and dignity and our professionalism as a, as a community. Are there obviously an openness to explore non-content specific areas and continuing education is a key skill for our providers, but are there other things that you would encourage continuing education providers to think about as they deploy educational programs, whether they're specifically about wellness or they're about everything else and need to include a moment of wellness to facilitate the type of learning we all want to achieve? I would say it's worth looking at the six goals that the National Academy of Medicine published in their report from last October on clinician burnout and how to approach it from a systematic view. And I'm going to list the six goals and say, I think there are places here to do CE programs on these. Number one is to create a positive work environment. And so this is now addressing, how do you do that? How do you do it on an individual basis in the work environment? What can we do from the institution? What could the team do to do that? Um, how to create a positive learning environment. Uh, this is something I speak about all the time. We have a very strange situation in medical school. We have healthy students that enter medical school. They're better mental and physical health than their college match peers. And within one year, they reverse this. Their anxiety scores go up and their mental health goes down. And this is something our training is doing. So we have to change our learning environment. We're working on this intently. Um, three, reduce administrative burden. 
I think there are ways in which we can share. How do we actually do that? Um, number four was to enable technological solutions. So if you link technology to the uh, work environment and how to optimize the workflow, uh, that's an important piece to actual well-being, not just productivity. Uh, number five is to provide support for clinicians and learners. And support here I take as mental health. And the shining example of that is uh, the program that Sydney I, EY connect, um, developed at Oregon Health Sciences University. She created a mental health program in which they were able to remove the shame and to remove the um, concern, the stigma of seeking mental health, both for residents and for faculty. Um, these are things that we have to go out of our way uh, to, um, to make transparent and to make available. And the last is we actually need more data. We need more research to figure out which are the factors uh, that are going to be the higher yield in terms of um, improving the learning and work environments and at the same time uh, reducing um, burnout and stress in our learners and in our faculty. I love that list, uh, Addy. And I, would, I was writing notes as you went along here, and I'll summarize uh, for our listeners as to what I think I, I heard. Creating a safe and positive learning environment hugely important to create longitudinality and trust as the key ingredients to making places safe. Number two, I'd say teaming and the insulating value of a team who will take care of you if they see you in trouble and you can take care of them, but also the value of a team to encourage performance and encourage mental health as well. I think the, the third issue related to process improvement and technology, third, three and four, and I would say a lot of that is about restoring a sense of control over your own environment, which is essential to reduce levels of stress for individuals, not to feel a victim of the environment, but to be empowered to be impartial, at least control over it. And technology and process improvements sources can do that, and CE providers can take the lead there. And I certainly see actually adding then skills to provide positive mental health, whether that's teaching people how to meditate or things they can really do that are actually useful for them and not pseudoscience that actually make a difference to their ability to perform well and positive relationships that are actually effective. That's uh, quite powerful. And sometimes there can be a, some cynicism or ambivalence even uh, about, about these skills, but they are real and they are genuine and they are well studied in many cases. And if, if our providers can take on some of those responsibilities or even just one of them, and even just introduce it for one minute at the start of one of their activities, like you said, Adi, uh, we're, we're moving in a positive direction to help people feel in control and have skills to take care of themselves and the people around them and try and insulate us from uh, additional damage to our entire profession by the evolution of this chronic high levels of stress. I couldn't agree more. You've summarized it succinctly and a lot better than I first stated it. Uh, but I want to add one more piece to this. Um, we are our own worst enemy. Um, if we take a look at where are the barriers to really achieving success in some of these areas, uh, there are studies that have shown that even though some of these techniques have helped people, they, they don't take the time or give themselves permission. So this is a work in progress in which we have to continually remind our colleagues that this is actually not only for the benefit of the learner, this is actually the benefit for you. Uh, 
uh, where we found, for example, in the groups that I just told you about earlier, where we formed these groups of 10 students, the faculty facilitators reported back that, yes, it was good for the students, but it was actually really good for themselves as well, acknowledging that there's benefit there. So this is something that could come out of uh, a CE course, for example, in which people begin to realize, wait a minute here, it's not always about everybody else. This is, there's no um, shame in saying, you know what, uh, this is actually good for me too. We're actually just educating ourselves through the process of teaching. (laughs) Exactly right. And in the paper we published in Academic Medicine in 2015, we looked at 60 facilitators uh, from our from across the, uh, institutions that use the Mind Body program, and really wanted to see what is it about uh, leading these groups that affected the faculty. Forget about the learners for a minute. And and what's interesting is the faculty that got trained and then began to do this um, saw a new area that they were not, you know, it's almost like my own transition here, uh, an area in which, wait, I never thought I'd be doing this, but you know what, this is important work. Uh, and this is something I could add to my armamentarium of things that um, I think I'm impacting on others. So for educators out there that are listening carefully, uh, there's a role that you may not have envisioned you having, but by virtue of the fact that you are a role model, Uh, you might consider getting engaged in helping model self-care by leading this, and then you'll see the impact on yourself. Just as you did for our Joint Accreditation Leadership Summit uh, a few weeks ago, Adi, and and did so well. Uh, Last question, any uh, final tips for managing anxiety and prioritizing self-care around this chaotic holiday season that's that's upon us? Uh, yes, I will say two things. Number one is that uh, we have a, a bit of a paradox in that we're so separated and uh, we don't have family. Uh, many of us are limiting family gatherings and that's always cause for um, sadness, I would say, and missed opportunity. But I see it also as um, let's look at the flip side. So for example, let me give you one a tangible uh, thing that's happened in our family. So my mother is 91. God bless her. And, um, you know, she has three children and three uh, daughters-in-law and sons-in-law and uh, 10 grandchildren. And now we have a few great-grandchildren. There are at least six or eight. Uh, Now, that's a big family. Uh, What we do now is that every Friday uh, before Shabbat, we call it the Haramadi pre-Shabbat happy hour, uh, or this is going to be the Hanukkah. Or, uh, you know, the holiday pre, uh, who knows what. Happens. I'm feeling like I want to become a, a Haramadi honorary family member. All Please, of join in. Here's the thing. <laughs> right. So we're there. Um, the Zoom is on. Uh, everybody knows. They all get the link. And the fact is, is that in about 15 minutes, she sees everybody. And, and if people can only do a flyby, hi, and here I am, that's great. So, um, you know, there are opportunities that technology has given us to connect in ways that we haven't done before. The second uh, piece that I would say, and this is actually really key, is to establish limits, establish boundaries. Uh, one of the things that we're suffering when we're working at home is that there's no boundary between what's work and what's personal and space. Um, you know, we, we have to find a place that we could do this quietly. I think it's essential that we create uh, boundaries and saying, you know what, it's, that's enough. We're going to close the computer now. We're going to focus on something else and we're going to do it without guilt. And when it comes to the holidays, celebrate, enjoy, Uh, We are social creatures, and we need to recognize that. 
And with that, I'm going to wish you a very, very Merry Christmas and a happy <laughs> holiday. And, and very much the same to you, Adi. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you. Thank you for those very useful full tips. Uh, for a moment, I thought I was going to melt away and, and drift away to the sound of your very soothing voice, but I'm glad I stayed attentive to the many pearls of wisdom that you were able to share with us today. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Thanks for those pearls and uh, uh, your contact information. I'm sure we can share with the community if people have follow-up uh, questions or issues for you. Thanks for your leadership in this area. And, and I wish you and your family and the extended Haramadi family happy hour. Uh, just a wonderful holiday season. Take care. Thank you so much. If you enjoy this conversation, we're always looking to extend the discussion on CME. Feel free to reach out with topics you'd like us to cover or let us know how you're addressing these issues in your organization. Thank you for listening and catch us on the next episode of Coffee with Graham.